Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. I'm uh, Professor Robert Shepard from Cornell University in the Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor Robert, for part two. It was a great pleasure to have you again in the podcast. So I would like to go again for the questions, but this time we have different questions. So I would like to go back when you're a child. Do you have any memories where you're interested in science or technology? Do you have any memories about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was always that my my favorite topic in school was always science. Mm-hmm. I never really wanted to do anything else. Um, and then, you know, and the ability to build things also became interesting to me too. So engineering um, later on, I think became even more interesting to me than, the, than science. Yeah, great. So I'm curious to ask you, what is the first robot to build? You are a chemist, but uh, I thank you for me, our discussion. You say that you, uh, you, you find to be called robotist, but I would like to ask you what is the soft robot you build, if you remember. Yeah, well, uh, the ver- so the first robot or the first soft robot? Maybe two, both of them, first robot and soft robot. Uh, you can't um, Well, the very, I mean, it wouldn't, it's not really, it's kind of a cheating saying this, but I, I guess it would be uh, Robbie the Robot that was... Um, part of the Nintendo entertainment system, I think in like 1989. It wasn't, you didn't really build it. You just plugged it into the Nintendo and then it would, uh, you know, move these pieces up and down while you were playing a game called Gyromite. And uh, it was really fascinating to me. But, you know, in terms of like building a robot from scratch, like a, a Lego kit, I didn't really do that, but I did judge um, first robotics competitions while I was a material scientist, um, which was pretty far from any of the research I was doing. So I think that was sort of my first real introduction into robotics, and it was pretty late. Mm. The first soft robotics uh, I worked on was that when I was in um, George Whiteside's chemistry group at Harvard, and that was that was building, building robots out of silicone um, and then trying to defend our argument that it actually is a robot and not a machine. Uh, mm-hmm. some, an, an argument that still goes on today. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. And I think that's leads to the question, how you would define soft robotics? Yeah. Because yeah. it's argument, so how we define from your perspective? Well, I think it's uh, um, a machine, a robot is, a, is an automated machine that, uh, that that does useful work. I mean, mm. some people might argue it doesn't have to be useful work, but I, I do. Um, so in that sense, the mechanism um, should have some kind of sensing, computation, and actuation in terms of motion response. And uh, for it to be soft, I then to me that means it has to uh, be of a, lo- of a um, lower stiffness or higher compliance than the objects it's mm-hmm. performing 
uh, work on or around. So, um, you know, titanium could be soft if at all, all it ever sees is tungsten carbide. Um, but, uh, but, you know, usually robots are performing work um, for or around humans on things that are softer than the um, metal they're, compo they're composed of. So mm -hmm. that's why soft robotics or soft robots are usually made of a low elastic modulus material mm -hmm. or of a high elastic modulus material that's thin enough that it will bend around the objects it's working on. That's interesting. So if I ask you what are the most, risk, um, most important questions that should be considered in that case for your work in soft robotics, so what kind of the important question you have to list before embarking on the project? How can you do useful work um, with a compliant robot? Mm -hmm. Because if you make it too compliant, you can't pick up things and you can't hold things up. So are you going to be able to do work that's useful for humans? Um, and, you know, in many cases, the answer uh, is to put things underwater where it doesn't have to support its weight as much. Uh, and this is also the answer in the animal kingdom. Um, mm -hmm. Or you put a skeleton on it or in it, and then it, it, then it becomes a hybrid of hard and soft robotics, which is just fine. Um, and mm -hmm. then, it's, or you put a totally soft thing on top of a, a human, which already has a skeleton, and then it becomes useful um, on land too. So yeah, I would just say you have to define how what you're doing is going to be useful. And sometimes it's, it's okay to say it's not gonna be useful this year or next year, um, but a plan as to how what you're doing on will be useful, I think is important. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important point and we will cover it later. But maybe for the moment, I'm curious to ask you what are the most misconceptions you are witnessing about soft robotics or something you have about your work also misconception? Um, the biggest misconception about soft robotics, I think, is that um, one, they have to be totally soft. That's not true. Um, that they're fragile or they're slow. That's not true. They're um, in many use cases, tougher and more robust than uh, normal robots. Um, and there are, they can be much faster depending on the actuation mechanism you're using. So I think that's not true either. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think another one um, could, could be that they need, we need another, you know, a few decades of research for them to be useful when there are many um, success stories of useful soft robotics right now. Yeah, great. So if you can tell our audience what actually you're working right now, because you have a lot of interesting new research uh, line. The last time we speak about the material, how we can design a material that can think. And that's what the focus of, uh, of the topic we had last year. But if you can tell us more, what, what updates about the new research in soft robotics for our audience? Uh, yeah, so our group has uh, come to latch on to sensing and energy storage mm -hmm. as uh, important, um, important needs in robotics that aren't being met um, and that soft robotics can 
uh, address particularly well. So um, using mammals as an example, we are very dexterous and manage our environment very well in a lot of ways because of our, um, you know, millions of mechanoreceptors um, all over our body that allow us to feel, you know, and respond to the environment because we have soft tissue over an endoskeleton. And that idea of a flesh for robots um, really kind of stuck with us. And so we're adapting um, light guides made of rubber to create um, photonic tactile sensing solutions for robot skins. And it's proving to be really um, useful. Like we can, we can allow uh, tissue, like um, rubber tissue to sense um, at you know, uh, sub-decinewton resolution um, with millimeter positional accuracy with pretty simple um, and scalable um, sensing uh, fabrication, sensing fabri fabrication techniques. Um, and, and so that I think is something that's gonna be very uh, necessary for um, enduring mobile robots. The other thing that's in, that's needed for enduring mobile robots, so things that can perceive and respond to their environment, but do it for a long time, is just much more energy density, just a lot more available energy in the robot so that it uh, can be untethered. Um, and, it, and, you know, there's another misconception, too, that um, untethered, that autonomous means untethered. You know, it doesn't. They're independent things. So when I say untethered, you can still have tethered autonomy, but uh, I'm talking about um, mobile robots that um, can traverse long distances. And to do that, uh, energy storage is important. So mm -hmm. one, one axis we can move on without having to create new chemistry for energy storage, like not a new lithium-ion battery, that field is uh, packed with researchers working on lithium-ion batteries. So, um, but we can we can use research in the field of uh, batteries and electrochemistry to improve the energy density of soft robots because robots in general have different boundary conditions than what batteries are usually designed for. Mm -hmm. And what yeah. what we did is um, use liquid batteries, otherwise known as redox flow batteries, as a hydraulic fluid. And so wherever you have a hydraulic fluid in a robot, you can replace it with the redox flow battery chemistry and improve the um, operational lifetime of that robot simply by doing that. And the more hydraulic fluid you have, the, um, the, the more energy um, uh, effective energy density you have. So, so that's, um, the, I say those, those two things, um, yeah. photonic light guides for tactile sensing and hydraulic electrolytic fluids for um, actuation and longer operational lifetimes of robots. Mm -hmm. I think that's super interesting because uh, and we see that energy bottleneck for autonomous soft robotics. That I'm curious to ask you uh, for energy density, do you think modeling that case is uh, playing a crucial role, how you design the shape of the sensor? If you can tell us more detail how you can 
combine the modeling or maybe the design of the sensor with the parameter for energy density uh, for the problem? Well, it's crucial because mm -hmm. in order for this to be useful at all, you have to design the robot from the ground up. If you take an existing robot, probably they haven't been designed with um, maximizing hydraulic fluid in mind. It's probably meant the cylinders that are being used or the other fluidic actuators that are being used, they haven't been thought of in, in terms of energy storage. They've been, so then you're mm -hmm. designing a, a normal battery to, to slide into your robot somewhere. And uh, now you can say, wait a minute, I don't need that battery anymore. I can make my, if it's a swimming robot, the fins larger or, um, or if it's an undulating robot, the bladder's bigger or something like that. And it's not a downside because all I'm doing is increasing the overall energy of the robot. Um, so that, that axis, that variable uh, is a new one um, and, and one you can tune. So in the case of a very specific case of uh, making a fluidically actuated soft robot, you need a pump. And that mm -hmm. pump moves fluid into the actuator and it causes it to bend. Um, and that pump is powered by a battery. Uh, and and it's, it's really fortuitous because redox flow batteries also need pumps. Otherwise you deplete the ions near the, um, near the electrodes. And so you have to circulate that liquid. Well, that circulation can be caused by the pump. Um, and that pump also needs to be there for fluidic actuation. So understanding how much uh, actuation you need, how fast it needs to happen, how quickly you're depleting your ions, which will affect your current density, um, how, much, how much weight you're going to save by removing the, the mm -hmm. single function battery with the multifunctional actuator batteries but also these, these uh, hydraulic fluids are heavier than water. Um, so you have to take that into account too. So it's not um, always obvious. It's not always the case that you should replace the, um, electrolyt the passive hydraulic fluid with electrolytic fluid. But mm -hmm. anyway, there's just so many variables to consider that yeah. you can't just go there and blindly design something. You have to start from the ground up with all of your variables um, interdependent variables yeah. uh, mapped out. That's a great point, yeah. And I think this question may be related here because we see in soft robotics, we, there's a trade-off between the, the performance in terms of the, the bandwidth and the mechanical performance. And, and, and there's always a trade-off if we speak about smart material like uniconductive polymer. That's, I don't know how you can explain why we have the slow performance and, and, and we have to trade off between the force or the mechanical performance and the bandwidth. Yeah, okay. So when you say that, the things that come to my mind are the very high speed actuation you get yeah. from a dielectric elastomer actuator, which can operate kilohertz yeah. at high strains. But mm -hmm. the work they can do uh, is pretty low. Not, you know, and a person working in that field to say, but there's a high work density, but the problem is, as of, as of now, really, you can't make a large enough volume of DEA to um, do a lot of work. 
So, mm -hmm. but I, I know a lot of people are working on that and I think that'll eventually get done. But for now, there seems to be a trade-off that you can have high speed actuation or you could use a, hydro a fluidic actuator that works off of pressurizing a volume to cause an actuator to move. And in that mm -hmm. case, you have um, mass transport. You're moving a liquid from one place to another place and that takes time. And so you have your uh, pressure flow rate curves for your pump that, that, has to, that you use to optimize for that. But I, I think the, the issue comes down to uh, mass transport. And in the actuators so far that have shown the ability to do a lot of work, um, you're, you have to transport a lot of material. And that can be, that's also the case in osmotic actuators, um, swelling actuators. Yeah. You could do real work with them, but it takes time. They're diffusion limited in that case. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we have a, a lot of really good choices in actuators to choose from. You just have to um, pick the right one for your system. Unfortunately, right now, there doesn't seem to be a muscle analog, which is generally good at all of them. Uh, some, some of the work on hazels or the hydraulically amplified, uh, yeah. those ones are, um, those look like they could be a general solution to muscle. Um, you know, we need more more researchers proving it out, um, but that that looks like a a good good answer because it's lo it's um, moving liquid, so it is still mass transport, but it's over smaller length scales. You don't have to move a liter of liquid from a central source, you know, to an extremity. The liquid is located in the extremity, but you're moving it around locally. So that, that could be an answer. Um, another one could be taking things like DEAs or um, light actuated elastomers, um, and then increasing the surface area to volume ratios so that the input energy fields are felt by more of the volume of the actuator. That way you don't have just thin films at high work density, you have thick volumes at high work density that can start doing real work. So that would be another avenue. But right now, fluidic elastomer actuators with pumps seem to be the simplest and most effective way to get um, real work. And, mm -hmm. and also um, tendon driven actuation where you have a DC motor um, just pulling on a wire uh, and that's, that's a, I'd say that's probably the simplest to design uh, with the highest work density um, mm. or the highest real work output, but um, doesn't offer uh, the same type of stretchability and compliance mm -hmm. you would get from a, a balloon. So yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. There's so many options. There's probably too many options right now. There needs to be fewer options so we can, we can just choose one or two and start um, making bigger and bigger and more complex uh, systems to, for, um, so, that, so that the robotics community, not just the soft robotics community, can see that um, the work that we do is, uh, is broadly useful. Yeah, that's a good point. And I would like to ask you, since you have the both expertise of a chemist and robotist as well, 
do you think that sometimes we have uh, a question which level of modeling you have to give for it just in molecular scale uh, or we just we have to continue scale and that's the first question and the second part is sometimes we see there is a gap between the material uh, scientists and robotists when we for a design recipe we we sometimes struggle to come up with significant parameter for the design and and that's missing maybe missing gap here uh, of communication how how i can select a significant parameter for the design um as a robotist and so and the material science you don't have the tools so the, for designing so i don't know how you see this uh, two sides as well well, first, um, I'd like to clarify a little bit. I'm a material scientist, which is slightly different than a chemist in that chemists usually, what they say, is push electrons, and uh, material scientists sort of uh, mm -hmm. use existing chemistries in new composites, although we do, we actually do some chemistry in the group, too. So I don't want any chemists to listen to say, hey, he's a material scientist. But yeah. um, no, we definitely, we do synthesis, too. Um, but then your next question was, how do you do modeling, or what do you choose, what scale do you do modeling yeah. at? Um, and you kind of broke up a little bit, but I think you mean, um, do you do it at the um, molecular scale all the way up to the uh, kinematics of the robots? At what yeah. point do you have to cut it off? And then the third question was um, how um, you, there's a gap between material scientists, let's say, and roboticists um, yeah. when they work together. And um, so, in terms, so for the modeling, I, I think. I th I'd like to start with the last question first, which is working with roboticists. And uh, I have tried this before and had some colossal failures where um, the problem is roboticists are used to working with um, electric motors, which have been under development for, you know, a hundred years and uh, more than that. And so they've had a lot of time to, to go through packaging and manufacturing and reliability um, in production. So when somebody buys uh, a DC motor, it's going to work and they know how to use it. Same thing with a uh, lithium polymer battery. Um, decades have been spent on packaging of it. So you know how to use that lithium polymer battery. And roboticists are used to work, used to working with um, standardized parts. Um, and when it comes to the field of soft robotics with so many, um, you know, emerging and fuzzy front end kind of actuators and sensors and power systems. I find that sort of old school roboticists, mm. a lot of them have a hard time um, accepting the fragility of the systems they're given. And so then we'll give up pretty early on trying to work with them. Um, but there are a few uh, that are, um, you know, up for the challenge, and and they're they're exciting. I love working with those types of roboticists. But that doesn't mean the other, the older school roboticists, are wrong. Um, it's up to us to make them to make our actuators and sensors and power systems robust and useful for them too. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say, if you're considering, if you're a material scientist. Uh, considering working with a roboticist, you should try to, you should be upfront with them about what your system is capable of and how, and how likely it is that it's going to work in what you're trying to do. Um, and, and try to understand that everything you think 
can go wrong, will go wrong, and many things you didn't think could go wrong will also go wrong. So work with the simplest, most reliable um, system you can to start your collaborative relationship and then build up the complexity from there. Mm -hmm. That's a good point, yeah. So I would like to ask you about the challenges or limitation as well for the energy space of robotics. Start from your work you're doing and your also perception about how, how it's done in the robotics field, the, considering energy, design of robotics according to the energy density. And that's, uh, I, I, if you can answer that too. All right, so what are the challenges in the energy field in soft robotics? Yeah, for, from your work and the, in general as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah. yeah. So there's uh, multifunctional use of energy, um, I think is a, is a big opportunity for us in the field of soft robotics. It is not a new idea. Um, people have been using their energy storage device for multiple functions for a while, uh, a lead acid battery, you know, forklift is there to provide counterbalance for the weight it's lifting. So this is not a new idea, but the boundary conditions in soft robotics allow us to do it in new ways. Um, for in, in our work, because fluidically actuated soft robots, a majority of their weight in many cases is from the, the fluid. Um, you can replace that fluid with, uh, with the electrochemistry of a redox flow battery and then automatically use that weight as energy storage. So it's, it's a win-win. Um, and so that's what we did. And we made a swimming robot because this is the case for hydraulic liquids or for hydraulic fluids. Mm -hmm. So if you tried to use a mostly liquid, soft, totally soft robot on land, it would be pretty heavy. Um, and you would need to use high pressures and high modulus rubbers for it to be able to hold up its own weight. And uh, the benefit there starts to diminish. If you're going underwater, you can use a liquid, um, a mostly aqueous liquid, and then it's okay because of the buoyant support of the ocean. You can make it very large and high volume. So in that case, it makes a lot of sense to do it. So we made our, uh, an underwater uh, swimming robot made of this redox flow chemistry um, and it worked really well, increased the lifetime, the, the operational lifetime of the robot by about four times simply by changing that liquid out. Um, there are, if we look at the historical examples of multifunctional use of energy, an interesting one is uh, autophagous systems, um, ones that sort of eat themselves as mm -hmm. they move. Uh, and, and that I think is a, has not been explored at all in our field. And that would be, probably give some pretty good results. Yeah. Uh, so maybe that, that needs a question. What is an area or direction of research you think is very promising that the community seems to disagree or doesn't, doesn't give much attention to it at the moment? Well, there's, uh, there's an outstanding issue of uh, reprogrammability um, and computation. And I brought this up the last time, and we really mm -hmm. haven't made a whole lot of uh, impact in that yet. And, and that's, can, can you have your material um, reprogram itself so that it can respond to environmental stimulus in different ways, depending on the task it's supposed to be performing? Um, and that would involve maybe something like a phase-changing material 
or some kind of dissipative system to uh, apply energy to locally stiffen, but then also having the ability to sense when you should make these changes um, and compute that response and then, and then reprogram the material locally. Uh, you could do that with a series of sensors and microcontrollers um, and electrostatics. Uh, that's a straightforward way to do it, but it's not, uh, it's, it's not a very multifunctional way to do it. Um, I think having systems that perform the uh, sensing and actuation um, in a composite um, and ones that perform the computation in a, mm -hmm. in a distributed composite material-like way, um, especially if you could mold it, um, you know, and process it like a material, that would be a tremendous uh, improvement. And it's one of the goals we have, but it's a, it's a very long-term goal because it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do. That's a good point as well. Um, and that raises a question. Do you think that we fully understand the physics behind the smart material. I'm asking this question because sometimes we see that, for example, when you apply traditional control techniques for smart material, like DA, for example, and it's, it's kind of destroying the, the natural dynamics of the material. Of course, we're not making sweeping generalization, but that's something we have witnessed sometimes, but I don't know what your thought about that. Do you think to which level we understand the smart material we mm -hmm. are working with? Yeah. Uh... You know, I, I, I don't know. I think we don't understand anything really well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so especially when dynamics, um, uh, when dynamical systems at, at these uh, molecular scales are involved. Mm. I mean, this isn't, these aren't um, um, bolted together levers, they're, uh, macromolecules reptating in solvents um, and the entropic states of them are you know astronomical in order um, and so you can mean field theory or statistically average these things out um, but if you get to small and small enough scales um, and you get thin and thin enough like ideally you brought up DEAs they, people want to make them extremely thin so that the electric field is, is large and you don't need thousands of volts to cause the actuation. Yeah. But when you make them extremely thin, um, if you make them very, very thin, you can even have quantum effects um, that would be hard uh, to, to model. And I, I don't know if anybody even is trying to model that. But um, yeah, when you get to this, so one of the, one of the um, what we talked, some of the things we talked about earlier were high surface area to volume interactions um, to allow mass transport to happen uh, quickly uh, for, for work or deliver um, input energy fields to these actuators to respond. But if you take that to the limit and you have you know, all surface area, then you have um, extremely uh, complex mm -hmm. surface interactions. Um, unless you're working in a extremely clean environment, you know, dust can matter. Um, biology is this way. We, mm -hmm. we have, we're re so remarkable because we're made up of proteins and these proteins are constantly um, moving around. 
to adapt to their environmental conditions. And the fact that we can survive for a hundred years is um, mind blowing. Mm -hmm. we're, not, we're nowhere near the ability to self-assemble machinery that can do work for us. Um, and, yep. and so, yeah, we, we don't understand our systems well enough mm -hmm. yet to get to the level we need to be at yeah. uh, to self-assemble or create these high surface area to, to volume ratio actuators and sensing networks to, um, to create the, the generalized robots that can perform the work we really would like them to do. That's really excellent point, and I would like to thank you for that. But maybe there's two questions here. The first one is, uh, what do you think that maybe the first step we have to take so that we can have a, a, a right stride toward it that we understand correctly how this material behaves? That's maybe the first step in a short term and longer term, so that we can help students, junior researcher to to get the idea how we can make sure we understand. And the second part is. Um, do you think what kind of material we have to use? Is it, uh, we have to think about viscoelastic material, what kind of optimum material for soft robotics in terms of energy space hmm. that we have to develop? Okay, well, I mean, we, we need multi-scale predictive models that we can experimentally validate um, on, the, on the single material scale as well as the composite actuator scale, so. Uh, I'm not a modeler, so I don't really know more than that, but um, there is too much uh, guess and check done in the lab right now, mm -hmm. particularly when we're not allowed to go to labs because of uh, yeah. you know, pandemic catastrophes. So, and then um, I think your, your, so your next question is, what is the best material? And the best material yeah. is one that doesn't exist right now, I don't think, and that's <clears throat> that would be... Um, uh, a highly extensible metal. So something that aluminum that can have um, high temperature, high um, resilience, but also uh, is reversibly extensible to larger strains. Mm -hmm. uh, with that, we would have um, higher, if everything would be more efficient because we wouldn't have viscoelastic losses, but that doesn't exist right now. And, 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 I, and our, you know, th there is also a limit to you to using nature to guide your design and that nature has um, a fixed set of inputs, um, low temperature processes um, in order to do things. We can use high temperature processing to make metals um, and, uh, and refine ceramics and things like that. Um, so in one sense, the field of soft robotics is is can use nature to guide it because we're primarily using soft materials that can be made at, with low temperature processes. But we, pro we might be losing advantages from high temperature processing of metals and ceramics <coughs> that could produce compliant mechanisms that are more energy efficient. So, but mm -hmm. yeah, a high level. That's interesting. Yeah, if there's any uh, research uh, you can highlight here about a uh, paper or something so that uh, if a student would like to check about this research line. On, on, uh, on the use yeah. of metals and ceramics and soft robotics? Yeah. yeah. I don't know of any. I know oh. that there's, there's people doing, uh, a lot of people working on liquid metals. Yeah. But that's not really 
the point. So, I, okay. yeah, I don't know of anybody. No, it's good work, just that it's not solving the um, highly resilient uh, structural problem. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the silicones are very good. They're, mo most of the energy that you put into it is recovered <coughs> when you release it, but uh, it, it's, it's not the same as a metal spring. Yeah. yeah. So, let's ask you this question. Where's the any direction you thought would work out very well, but empirical result proved something else was maybe interesting? I wasn't expected to. What do you thought about it? Well, yeah, here's an interesting, yeah, here's something I guess that's kind of interesting that, that we're just working on now. Mm -hmm. But there, there are uh, thermotropic liquid crystals that when you, you know, chain, that you, when you increase the temperature, you can trigger a pneumatic to um, isotropic transition. And, uh, and if you look at a lot of papers in this space, you see this and uh, you get very high work densities in large deformations, um, and it's implied that it's this pneumatic isotropic transition. Uh, and so, you know, we spent quite a bit of time uh, creating a printer that could uh, align these liquid crystals while they're being printed, um, and so then we could um, we could we could then heat them up, and then they would reversibly um, contract and create these thermotropic liquid crystal elastomer actuators. And, uh, you know, we did it using a new printing process and it works really well, but it's actually not the primary uh, work component in that um, molecular reconfiguration is very little to do with this uh, liquid crystal transition. And it's much more to do with um, entropic elasticity of, of polymers generally. Um, whether or not you're using a liquid crystal, uh, it seems you could get the same result simply by aligning uh, macromolecules above their glass transition temperature. We haven't published this yet. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty close, but that was surprising to us that we're processing liquid crystals and we expected the liquid crystal in nature, um, or at least these, these transitions of order transitions, would be very impactful, but they seem to not matter really as much as just the, um, as any, any macromolecule. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, yeah. So um, if I ask you, what are the biggest technological roadblocks for soft robotics in the short term and long term? Well, in the short term, it's, it's uh, reliability. Um, so lots of people, including us, will create demonstrations that look really cool but um, it took a graduate student years to make it work, and then they leave, and then it would take another person years to also make it work. Mm -hmm. So have, publishing, publishing work that is imitable by other people, um, and that is worth imitating, I think is important. Um, I'm, we're guilty as anybody else about that. And then, um, and then long-term, once there's, uh, an, an aggregation, a consensus around reliable sensors and actuators um, and uh, signal processing methods, um, then uh, commercialization of these results and making hardware available 
to roboticists so that um, soft robotics isn't really something separate than robotics. It's just components of a robot. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent point as well. Yeah. Um, for nonlinearities, uh, since it brings opportunities of robotics, I'm curious to ask you what kind of nonlinearities you have to remove or you have to get uh, benefit of it. What kind of nonlinearities could be useful and maybe can be detrimental for your soft robot? Yeah, I don't like the idea of removing nonlinearities. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it seems that it's missing the point of um, the materials aspect of soft robotics, which, which helps make it unique from uh, normal robotics. Yeah. There, a lot of times I'll see uh, people taking away everything that's unique about soft robotics to make it a useful robot. And in that, in that case, why are we doing it? So I like, the, I like embracing nonlinearities. Uh, they can do, as long as they're repeatable, um, mm -hmm. and you can model and predict them. Rather, that's, a, that's maybe one of the uh, big uses of modeling would be to um, understand how to understand nonlinearities and how to use them. So uh, they, they, you can get very high speed actuation from what is n normally a lower speed um, system, like fluidic actuators, get them close to their uh, balloon instability, and, um, and then get a, a quick actuation response there. Um, that would be one. And then um, probably, although I'm less, less sure about this, the uh, energy efficiency of uh, storing, uh, re storing, uh, releasing and recovering energy again, probably that's, that's, that's less of an energy efficiency thing and, st and still back to the dynamics. So I, yeah, nonlinearity seem to be very useful for high speed motion. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I'll just say that. Yeah, but I think what you said about it to be repeatable, I think that's a very interesting point. But since we see sometimes the result is not reproducible sometimes, especially in smart material. Due to fabrication technique, if you can tell us more, maybe what could be a visible example? Nonlinearities can be repeatable, and we can be benefit from it, from soft robotics in general. Um, In some of the work that we did in, in George Whiteside's group, we had this uh, double molded new net design that um, Bobek Mosday uh, published while he was in the group. And it gets very high speed motion from a pneumatically actuated, essentially balloon. And uh, it, if you do high speed video of it and you look at the um, shapes that that the actuator is undergoing it's, it's actually using an instability for for part of this high-speed motion and that's repeatable they're able to get um, the same uh, i think arc length and actual or actuation amplitude over millions of cycles in that paper i think it's called rapid actuation of uh, double molded new, new nets or something like that but mm -hmm. that's an example of a repeatable high-speed instability or instability for you use of instability for high-speed repeatable actuation in these in these systems mm -hmm. great yeah so if i ask you um, how we ensure that develops of robotics is beneficial to the community since we have a funding and grant for five years how we bring this discussion to the table that we are planning to something maybe beneficial beneficial 
that that I think is a I think it's upon us to translate the technologies we developed to um, licensing or commercialization in other ways. Mm -hmm. uh, five years is, is not really that long. So, you know, I, I think that we should have a longer timeline to create those examples, but we do have some already. There's Soft Robotics Incorporated, which makes um, manipulators for um, the food industry, and that's um, doing tremendously well. There's um, uh, other examples for, I think, Artemis, maybe, is their name, which is a, a startup out of UC Boulder. Um, yeah. And then uh, Stretch Sense is another one in uh, Auckland, New Zealand, and they're doing really well in motion capture. Um, we, my, we have a company um, that we're starting on um, sensing fabrics. Mm -hmm. I think that we just need to see um, more of this happen and uh, yeah. a, a toolbox, like a catalog. I need a DC motor, but instead of a DC motor, it's a fluidic actuator. So I, you know, hook here and it comes in. And that, that's yeah. what I think we should see. But I, I think we should give ourselves longer than five years for, um, yeah. to, have, to have that result. That's a really good example. And I think maybe the question here, do you think when we start, should the project be uh, technology driven or product driven? I'm asking this question because sometimes it's confusing for students to find a, 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 maybe the visible path for the end goal. So yeah, yeah. do you think sometimes when you invest three years, four years in a project and you don't know whether it could be a feasible application, maybe in the longer term, but what you thought about that, how we can make sure there is no waste of time and where there's also visible paths for something meaningful? Well, uh, I Maybe it's because uh, George Whitesides was my mentor, but he yeah. would say, um, <laughs> I hope I'm not misquoting him, but you, know, ap you may as well do applications-driven research um, because the science is there anyway. Um, mm -hmm. So we always try to have an application in mind in my group when we, when we do the work. Sometimes we do uh, basic science with no application in mind. Um, but but usually that's biologically driven, where you can see an example in nature of some physical phenomenon that doesn't exist in our synthetic hardware, and we want to try and mimic it. And uh, at the end, maybe it turns out to not be useful, but um, that it's providing a vision. Yeah. Um, but you know, it could just be that we're not, or I'm not smart enough to do uh, the the basic stuff, the basic research without having a, a target or vision in mind. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. So the next question, how can we ensure a diversity of approaches, its exposure they deserve and prevent overinvestment in limited techniques? So the question about intellectual inclusiveness in, um, in ideas, how can we enable more inclusive culture around the combative ideas? That's a really, I think that's, that's the best thing I've heard in a while, that question, because uh, you could, it's, yeah, it's a problem because if everybody, like for graph, graphene, for example, mm -hmm. um, it's a great material, but does that mean carbon nanotubes aren't useful anymore? Not really. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't have a, I don't have skin in that game because we don't work on that stuff, but it just seems that uh, moving from one hot thing to the next hot thing, um, it, Makes it makes the scientific community susceptible to missed opportunities. Um, 
and and punishes long-term deep research in a, in a particular thing so um, which I don't think is is right how to how to ensure that there's yeah. a diversity of research interests I think that's a, that's probably a policy level thing from governments and uh, research institutions um, I, I I feel lucky where I am I don't feel pressure to move in any one particular direction or another mm. um, and the uh, our 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 funding seems to be pretty good. I mean, recently there's, um, because of COVID, there's a lot of research calls that can help address COVID. And, uh, you know, and I think that's a good thing. We should be trying to solve that problem um, as long as they're genuine attempts and, and, and not yeah. sort of uh, disingenuous reapplications of research that you don't think will be useful, but could maybe get funded because it's could, you know, you could package it that way. So. I think there's a there's a research scientists should be honest um, with what their abilities are. Governments should be um, should be careful to 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 have uh, to place a lot of bets rather than a few big bets. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's no, I, I really I really like this answer. Thanks so much for that. Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's high level. I think yeah of how I think also part of that also for funding as well. I think funding and publication as well shape how the field looks like. I don't know, maybe that's part as well. Yeah. So uh, what do you think maybe opportunities for machine learning? You highlighted in your part one uh, opportunities, but I'm curious to ask you what could be new opportunities again you have witnessed through this year for machine learning and soft robotics domain? Well, this is, this is a, uh... This is where um, soft robotics really shines. Mm -hmm. I was listening to a talk by Annette Hosoy from MIT um, when we were still going to talks. Um, and it was really enlightening. And one of the biggest takeaways to me was that, um, and I hope I'm not misinterpreting her point, but that um, the uh, dissipative nature of uh, many soft robotic systems, many types of soft robotic systems, like the viscoelastic ones, uh, really helps machine learning um, work efficiently. Because a lot of the third and fourth order uh, dynamics you might get, because in non-dissipative systems, aren't there. So um, it's easier to train your models. Combine that um, with the, um, the ability to make soft deformation sensors or tactile sensors, which is what we're doing, that's why I'm talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's possible to make skins that you can overlay on whatever robot, hard or soft, um, and then train it using machine learning um, to, to, um, to perceive the environment much better. And I, mm -hmm. There's a few papers that have come out on it and much more to come. Um, on efficient machine learning techniques for uh, tactile sensing in soft robots. And that might be one of the biggest um, ways soft robotics is successful in the near term. That's a great, yeah. And do you think again, the, maybe the argument about the level of like white or gray zoom for uh, the, um, the machine learning because machine learning almost black box modeling. So um, I don't know what you see this trade off between how much level we have to know 
about the systems, software work systems, and the machine learning sometimes is abstract. Although, um, so do you see this? There's something maybe here, maybe concerning, or I think there's enough to be concerned about without that. So from my perspective, I don't mind that I, I don't really know what the, what networks are being formed in um, in the convolutional neural network, for example, um, uh, because at this point, there's it's so hard to predict and control our soft robots that if we can cheat uh, at the moment. I, I think that's fine. We can, we can, we can take advantage of vis visualization of uh, these train these training systems that other computer scientists are developing uh, later. I'm certainly not going to stop um, yeah. uh, applying machine learning because I don't really understand what's what's going on with it because it's yeah. it's just such an effective tool. Yeah, great. So we're closing this end. We have just three questions. Do you think ego is important for the researcher? Ego? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think you have to be confident enough in your ideas that you don't give up on them right away when they don't work. Yeah. Um, I think you shouldn't have too much of one that you don't let your students' ideas um, shine through when they're good ones. Um, there's a lot of work we do in my group that's uh, student-driven. It comes from them. Um, and you know they come come out with really good papers. So yeah, yeah. I think you need to have some, but uh, like in anything, everything in moderation. Yeah, great. So, what would be the most important quality you have gained while working in academia? Something you have to maintain and very important for you as academician. Well, I think there's um, two. Mm -hmm. One is uh, integrity. Um, the, you know, our, 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 um, process, our, our scientific method relies on trust and we have to, you know, trust our students, but we, and we also have to trust other researchers. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so it's everything we publish, it's, it should be, you know, first of its kind or reporting something in some way. So, you know, it's, a, I kind of think, unnecessary. Um, I think we, we should try to not overhype our results. Mm -hmm. um, that would be, but that's not, that's not the worst thing as long as there's, you know, truth in publication, which I think we're doing a pretty good job on generally as a community. Um, so that's not really a concern. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And then, then a, another is um, providing security for your students that mm -hmm. you know they know that what they're working on um, isn't even if they don't get the result that you are expecting that they know that um, the result is still going to be interesting. Um, because it's there, it's hard times right now, yeah. and I th I think um, students are stressed, faculty are stressed, but um, as long as we remember that we're just trying to pursue truth, and uh, not a particular technological outcome, yeah, that, that I think that's uh, something to focus on too. 
I would like to thank you for this point because you really bring an important point about the relationship, how the mentor and mentee in such difficult time like we have, how this relationship can be supportive. So uh, thank you for bringing this point here. Yeah. So lastly, what was the best advice was given to you? Was it personally or professionally? And was it life changing for you? Um, boy. Boy. I, I don't know if it's advice really, but just uh, um, when, I, when I started, and I still am fairly, um, yeah. when I was an uh, undergraduate, yeah. I did uh, research in um, Jennifer Lewis's lab at University mm -hmm. of Illinois. Yeah. And um, I was, you know, had a lot of energy and was very enthusiastic, but was not very um, focused in how I was approaching the research. Um, and it would have been very easy for her to um, sort of say, you know, discount me and then get another undergraduate researcher who was um, more organized and uh, I guess clean in presentation. But she didn't do that and uh, mentored me to be, you know, more clean in my presentation and uh, um, focused on the research I was doing. I wouldn't say there's a one-time thing she said. It was just um, repeated interactions um, that that helped, and so that allowed me, I think, to be pretty good at um, pursuing uh, hypothesis and testing it, and then uh, mm -hmm. and then presenting the results of that uh, testing um, in a clear way. And then when I went to George Whiteside's group at Harvard, I think it was pretty similar in, in um, providing the security and consistent um, and repeated uh, advice uh, that, you know, this is hypothesis-driven research you're testing something um, and you know what the results are yeah. is what the results are um, and and then spending a lot of time about placing those results in the context of um, technological application uh, is important too so you know no matter what your results are there's some way that it can help technology whether that be as a guide, as a guideline for not doing this for this projectile mm -hmm. application, or that finding an application for it where it's useful to other things. So, um, I think just persistent um, mentorship um, is is more important than one particular statement or uh, yeah. leading by leading by example. And, and and both Jennifer Lewis and George Whitesides are are great leaders. Yeah, I think that's really profound and wonderful uh, statement. And I think it's all about the good mentorship, I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, do you have any final words for softball community who'd like to say? Any final words? Uh, soft robots is hard. Okay, that's... <laughs> <laughs> so that's it, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's hard, yeah, indeed. I can agree with that. So uh, thanks so much, Professor Robert. I really enjoyed this discussion. And yeah, um, thank you once again for being part two. Thank you. Thanks, Marwa. Have a good day.